So we thought we would start as we've been doing with just a chant and a little silence to get ourselves settled and centered. And um, some of you will remember this one from previous classes. The words are, slowly blooms the rose within. And um, hopefully that's what's happening little by little. A rose is blossoming in our hearts. And um, so I will start the chant and just join in as you're comfortable. Harmonize as you feel moved. And then we'll settle in for a little silence before we open the teaching. So first, just taking a few breaths together. I'm letting awareness drop down from mental activity into heart spaciousness. our other sister Abrahamic tradition from the great Sufi Muslim poet Hafez. How did the rose ever open its petals and blossom, revealing all its beauty to the world? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. 
Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Which, God willing, is what we're up to, feeling the encouragement of light against one another's being, feeling the encouragement of the light of our traditions against one another, not in competition, but in mutual friendship and sharing, um, so that old fears that would keep that rose of our being tightly closed up, that it can slowly, little by little, open and blossom, and revealing its fragrance and beauty to the world. Blessed. So we want to keep things flowing from last week where we were diving into the beginning of John. Did any of you, I'm sorry, of Mark, Mark's gospel, our earliest narrative gospel, we think written around the year 70, and we handed out copies. We have a few more here if anyone didn't get one. So. We made a whole bunch. So if you don't have one, and we Anybody like who one, needs, we made plenty. Yeah. We'll bring them around. I have plenty. I have plenty. Hand them to them, Jonathan, and let them share them. <laughs> no, no, no. I have found that it's faster to do this than to have you pass them around. Okay. And that's why I do it. It's for only for efficiency, that's all. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you, don't worry. Do you know the chant that has the words to the um, hockey poem? Over here? Yeah. Everybody said? There's a lot of theological Jesus movies on TV these days. Oh, is it that time of year? Yeah. It's that time of year. All the theological That time of year. Oh, so um, where we left off, we had just, we had just um, began diving into these opening words where Mark is framing the story of Jesus. And we read the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, of Yeshua, the Mashiach, uh, and some manuscripts add the phrase, Son of God, and some of the early manuscripts are lacking that phrase. And we looked at how that phrase was a, 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 a kingly title given to David when he was anointed. He was called Son of God, and in the Psalms of, of anointing, the sort of Davidic... Um, the coronation psalms, the voice of God says, today you are my son, this day I have begotten you. And so we see that language of, of David, uh, language of Messiah, carrying over and being now molded around the experience and the, the figure of Jesus. And we dive immediately into this story of Yohanan the Dipper. 
or as we more commonly translate it, John the Baptist. And well, would you remind people what this particular translation is that they have? Yeah, and the copy that you're looking at, this is a, a, a really wonderful translation done by a, a contemporary poet, Willis Barnstone. And his translation is called The Restored New Testament. And um, he's not writing from any sort of, he has no uh, religious agenda uh, in his translation. His only agenda is to really restore the... Um, the Jewish place and people names to the text so that we remember like these were Jewish people on Jewish soil um, that we we feel the Jewishness so he's taken names that have been translated into first Greek and then into English and he's restored them to their Hebrew or Aramaic equivalents so, so that we we feel that when we move through the world of the text and so John the Baptist is Yohanan the Dipper and Yeshua, Jesus the Christ is Yeshua the Mashiach. So we're hearing, um, hearing that, that spirit in the text. And the other lovely thing he does, he wants to capture the poetry of the text, so often he will break things out into verse in the text, so you feel the, the poetry in the text. Um, but where we left off was this figure of Yohanan the Dipper, and that, that from Mark, uh, Mark writing around the year 70, the place he wanted to begin the story was with John the Baptist. That was, in his mind, the first, earliest, most significant historical memory of Jesus, that he was baptized by John. We'll see later Gospels start at different points and start at much earlier points. Um, but for John, we begin with an adult Jesus who is going out to the wilderness, out into the desert, um, to submit himself to the baptism of this Jewish reform prophet. Um, so we ended with a quotation, oh, and a reminder to silence the devices. Um, we ended with a quotation last go from um, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who was probably writing towards the, around the year, one, died around the year 100, I think, so writing late first century. And he's one of our non-Christian sources who remembers John the Baptist, um, who writes an account of him. So John the Baptist was significant enough a figure in Jewish history that he was remembered not just by those who had become Christians, but also by Jews. Um, and so he was a prophet and a movement founder in his own right. And we have at least one historic religion today that still roots itself in the, the preaching mission of John. If you know the Mandeans, um, they're mostly in Iraq, in Iran, in Jordan. And they see John the Baptist, Yohanan the Dipper, as the last great prophetic teacher in their lineage. And they're a very kind of dualistic, sort of Gnostic uh, tradition, um, and very small today. And a lot of them, were, they were persecuted in, um, in, I guess, in Iran, Iraq, during, during wartime. I think in, during the Iraqi war, a lot of them um, immigrated. But still this movement that that holds John the Baptist up as their great teacher. And so we'll see there's a tension in these texts. The Christians are remembering um, John the Baptist and that Jesus submitted himself to John's baptism. Um, but the Christians need to also say, but, but Jesus was better than John. Um, and we see there's a little embarrassment in the text, in the historical memory, that John was so well remembered he couldn't be erased from the text. But they had to sort of say, but you know, but our guy is the guy. 
and, and that's because there was tension between these two communities. Uh, John the Baptist had a movement in its own right that still survives in certain forms today. Jesus, um, it would seem, uh, apprenticed himself in some way to John. The memory that's embedded in the text in this very brief stylized way is that Jesus went out to John in the wilderness and was baptized by him, which is saying he was submitting himself to John's teaching. Um, some scholars are saying maybe compressed in this one event is a memory that Jesus was mentored by John, studied by John, you know, lived with John in the wilderness, that this is where part of his formation perhaps came from. Um, and scholars, contemporary scholars, particularly since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, have raised the question, could John the Baptist have been a member of the Dead Sea Scrolls community at Qumran? And a lot of scholars argue that that was very likely an Essene community. And again, Flavius Josephus, he records three main Jewish philosophies in his day, and he says he actually apprenticed himself to teachers in all three schools and studied and learned in all three. And those were the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Um, so um, we'll look at some texts from Josephus that tell us how the Essenes were remembered and why there's probably a very deep link between John, Jesus, and that movement. Um, do you want to throw anything in at that? Just that I was reading in the various New Testament translation notes that modern scholars actually think that in the early centuries of the church, there was debate, there was a real, as you're saying, a, a genuine like uh, conflict between the followers of John and Jesus. And Jesus, and I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah, this was an historic tension. And um, those who, who followed John, probably very many who saw him or imagine him to be their long for Messiah, and those who began following Jesus and were imagining him to be the long for Messiah, and, um, and which movement were you a part of? And you see, like, there's, you know, maybe some tension around disciple poaching, you know, people from one movement moving over to the other movement, and, um, and you see a number of Jesus' early students, we're told in the text, were originally disciples or students of John, and then they began following Jesus. So there's, there's a linking between these two figures. They were clearly friends. They clearly were very close. Um, and there's some kind of tension and break between these two figures. So because John is attested outside of the Gospels themselves, we can assume he's an historical figure, right? And uh, we know some things about him. Uh, same, so when you get to, whenever you right. get to so, that. So we know, for example, that he was killed by... Um, Herod Antipas. This came up last time. People said, wait, what are these Herods? There's Herod the Great, who died around the time Jesus was born. And then there's um, successors who are appointed from his family line. One of those is Herod Antipas, who's ruling um, at the time of, of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so just know that we're not always talking about the same Herod. But I'll read to you what we ended with last, last time from Josephus about about John. So Josephus writes in his, in his book, Jewish Antiquities, um, he's talking about a war that happened between Herod's army and the army of Aratos. And Herod's army is defeated. And so the word on the street is that Herod is being punished for killing John the Baptist. Um, and we talked about the way we always try to figure out, well, 
why did this bad thing happen to us in history? Well, it must be because we did something wrong. And so why did Herod, who was, who was Jewish, um, a Jewish but Roman collaborator, very much so, um, why was Herod, de Herod defeated? He killed John the Baptist, and so God allowed this bad thing to happen. And so this is how Josephus, and Josephus speaks favorably of John. Um, this is how he remembers him. Uh, for Herod had killed this good man, who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. For only thus, in John's opinion, would the baptism he administered be acceptable to God, namely, if they used it to obtain not pardon for some sins, but rather the cleansing of their bodies, inasmuch as it was taken for granted that their souls had already been purified by justice. And so we see here again the, the idea that there's a ritual purification happening, that John is immersing people, but that that only has meaning in so much as their souls are also purified by justice. Um, yeah. What does that mean, by justice? Uh, so by walking the way of the prophets. Um, you know, the justice, mercy. The Hebrew word would be tzedek. Tzedek, righteousness. Righteousness. Um, so, uh, this is another linking that scholars think may tie John to the Essene movement because we see they actually were very concerned with um, ritual purity and with washing. And this was a common part of their practice. They immersed um, uh, in, in mikvah and ritual, uh, ritual baths. So, Josephus goes on and says, Now many people came in crowds to John for they were greatly moved by his words. Mm -hmm. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything John should advise, uh -oh. thought it best to put him to death. <laughs> in this way, he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Accordingly, John was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus uh, and was put to death. Now the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure with him. Um, and so this is one memory of, of both Herod and of John. And so what was, what was John up to? If we turn to the Gospels, we have some records of what are remembered to be John's sermons. What was John actually preaching? So we have here that it was upsetting people, upsetting the, the authorities, and that it was about exercising virtue, righteousness uh, towards one another and piety towards God. So I'll read how the gospel accounts remember John's preaching. And remember again that John is not a Christian figure, John is a reform prophet in, in first century Judaism. John said to the crowds that came out to be washed by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Um, so again, you, the, the inner life has to correspond with the outer you know, gestures of repentance. Do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Um, now, this is, again, what the prophets are always saying, right? Mm -hmm. This can sound, from a Christian perspective, as an anti-Semitic jab, but... But, over and over it says, don't think that, you're, that God is going to protect you just because you're, is, you're the children of Israel that he's chosen. God has chosen you to fulfill this covenant that requires your righteous behavior. And so there is an, there is an eternal debate uh, in Jewish thought from the beginning of uh, whether this covenant ensures our safety or whether it's contingent on our behavior. And the, the prophets always arise to say, uh-uh, no, it's not about who you are, it's about how you behave. And this is a central Jewish uh, um, thing, as, as Matt is saying. So the text goes on then, and now we get to see what John is teaching. So we're told that the crowds then asked him, what then should we do? How should we live? What should, how, how should we act? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. And we'll get to why that's so significant in, in, a, in a little while. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized, to be washed. And they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the kinds of teachings he's giving. Wow. And um, it's very basic ethical teaching, but we'll see why this matters so much, um, particularly soldiers and tax collectors, and why it's shocking that they're coming to him. Um, do you want to share a little bit about the taxation situation? You want to go to that now? Well, we, we can hold off. So hold we'll, off on that. Yeah. Uh, I will, again, advertise this book that Matthew uh, uh, gave me to read. And, I, and uh, it's called Jesus, A New Vision by Marcus Borg, who passed away a few years ago. Jesus, A New Vision by Marcus Borg. I've read it twice now. Um, it's, it's, it's a good book if you're interested in this subject. B-O-R-G. B-O-R-G. Uh, Jesus, a new vision, because a lot of the insights I've been like uh, chewing over are coming from my reading here. I wanted you to know about that, and including some other excursions we'll take as we go along. Um, and what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what you oh, just hold on. read? Uh, we'll that place first. We'll what, place. I, what I just read? The, those were quotations from the Gospel of Luke, um, John's preaching. That little sermon that we heard from John comes from Luke chapter three. And I was also reading from Flavius Josephus, his first century um, account called Jewish Antiquities. Yeah, Blaze? Um, I can't get this out of my head, so I might just ask. Um, there was this movie, or there's this opera, Salome, where mm. she says, bring me the head of John the Baptist. Oh, yeah. Can you say, is that? Which yeah. gospel does so, that come from? So, <laughs> so I want to say it's Luke's gospel. Maybe Luke and Matthew both have versions of this. and uh, so. There's a very stylized story of the, the death of John the Baptist um, that, that some scholars find suspicious, that it's really a dramatized you know, um, account of what happened. And that story, 
Herod, um, John the Baptist is calling out Herod because he's actually taken his brother Philip's wife and married her. And, and Philip is alive. And so John, the text says, John is condemning him for taking his brother's wife. And you know, in, in, in Jewish law, if the brother has died and hasn't had a child, then you can take the... the you're required right, to take it. Right, you're, but in this case, this is a big no-no. So John is criticizing him. Um, and so for this and for other reasons, he's imprisoned. And it's said that Herodias, who Herod has married, his brother's wife, um, she despises him because he's dissing her relationship with Herod. And so... Um, one night while Herod is having a party and he's drunk, um, her daughter comes out and dances for the, the, the you know, gathering, and he says, you know, I will give you anything that you want um, up to half of my kingdom. So she goes oh, to this her... This is right out of the book of Esther. Yeah, and that, this is why scholars think this is actually um, a sort of midrashic you know, imagining of what happened because it's based on the story from Esther. So she goes to her mother and she says, go and tell him to give you the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so then we're told that, that Herod doesn't want to do this because even though he's really put off by John, he's also strangely attracted to John. And he, he goes down to his cell and listens to him preach. Um, wow. So he's drawn to him and repulsed by him at the same time. But because he doesn't want to break his oath in front of the gathered assembly, he sends the guards to bring his head and John is killed. And then it's said that the disciples then get word of this and they go and retrieve John's body and give him proper burial. Um, scholars doubt the, the literal historical veracity of that account um, because, you know, who was in the room to see that? And it seems stylized and based on earlier stories from Hebrew scripture. Um, and also, Herod was just a pretty brutal, nasty guy to begin with. So Josephus's account that just said, he saw Herod as a threat, so he killed him. Scholars tend to think that's probably more realistic, that Herod didn't hesitate to kill John. Um, but any, any thoughts on that? Um, I thought we should mention again, Josephus, an amazingly picturesque character of first century, who was a Jewish general, as far as we know, in the revolt against Rome, and then after the defeat, moved to Rome and, and started to write in Greek about the history of the Jews who were in the Roman Empire an ancient and mysterious people, right? They've been around already a long time and he wrote these popular histories about the Jews and the wars of, uh, and that, that were preserved. So it, it, Josephus is an incredibly important source for our understanding of first, early, first century Judaism and early Christianity because he's the only external voice, mm -hmm. virtually the only outside of the scriptures that we have. He also wrote a defense of Judaism popularized for the Roman audience. And uh, he's a very interesting character because uh, he, he played both sides. Mm -hmm. And his history, just like anybody's history, is tendentious, meaning he wants to make a point, he's telling a version of right. events. He has an agenda. He has an agenda, so does every historian, right? So it's tricky to and interesting to read him, not take him at face value, but also know that he's giving us more information 
about the first century than almost anybody we have from about this. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah, and he says, uh, we'll come back around in just a moment. He says that, uh, I'll read the quote just to give you a little of his personal background. When he was 16 years old, he, he decided, he made this decision that he was going to explore the existing Jewish philosophies or sects. So this is a quote from his biography. Um, these are his own words. When I was about 16 years old, I had a mind to make a trial of the several sects that were among us. There are three of these, that of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the third, that of the Essenes, as we have frequently told you. I thought that being acquainted with them all, I could choose the best. So I consigned myself to hardship and underwent great difficulties and went through them all. So he apprenticed himself to a master in each of these lineages. Or at least he says he did. Or at least he says yeah. he did. Um, <laughs> nor did I content myself with the trying of these three only, for when I was informed that one whose name was Banus lived in the desert and used no other clothing than what grew upon trees and had no other food than what grew of its own accord and bathed himself in cold water frequently both day and night to purify himself, I imitated him in those things and continued with him for three years. All right. um, so he really, if we are to believe him, apprenticed himself to several major Jewish schools of thought. Um, and that's why a lot of what we know, um, or assume to know, about these movements, it actually comes from his records. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm yes. just going to mention, um, out of this course, I picked up, Will Durant wrote, I don't know, 12 books of history. So I'm in the book, uh, Caesar and Christ, mm -hmm. and he talks quite a bit about Josephus and all these related characters, and uh, more than you want to know, actually. A lot of detail. Yeah. Will Durant, Will Durant. Was, that was called, what was it? It was like 12 volumes? Yeah, so this is one of the first volumes. It's oh, fascinating. Christ and Caesar, and Christ or Caesar, and Caesar. Or Caesar mm -hmm. and Christ. I mean, it's huge. Uh, and a lot of detail. I grew detail. up with that on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So pick it up. <laughs> Look at it. Was John already murdered before Jesus? Or so so they, they, they're alive at the same time. Jesus work? apprentices him. Jesus uh, submits himself to the baptism of John. And so there's a period of overlapping ministries. We're told that after Jesus' baptism, uh, he then began his ministry, his movement. Um, and at this time, it could still seem that he's essentially a disciple of John, but he's carrying the message out um, into the towns and villages. Sometime during the early um, days, months, years of Jesus' ministry, John is imprisoned by Herod. After Jesus has, has, already, has already been baptized by John. Okay. So then John is murdered. And Jesus is still... And Jesus is still yeah, alive. For a, a little while. A little while. In other words, uh, what's helpful about this for me is think about a moment in history where um, um, popular leaders who are viewed as a danger to the ruling powers are being um, uh, silenced, knocked off. Right? So John and Jesus, within some short time of each other are both executed. Right. They're both considered threats because of the popularity. Yeah, yeah 1960s and, in America. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. yeah, yeah. It's like, like thinking all history over and over again. Over and over again. In the late 60s, who's getting killed? You know, it's like one after the other. Yes. Yeah, Harriet. Um, and you can picture the time of great ferment, therefore, that's going on. Mm -hmm. Take well, a look. Isn't it 
Um, I, I'm not sure where it appears in the Bible, but don't John and Jesus recognize each other before they're even born? Well, those are those are the stories that we'll develop about them. So when we come, so our plan is not next, but the next week, which will be the week before we take a break for Christmas. We'll look actually look at the the birth narratives, the stories. Um, uh, so hold that off. But yes, um, according by, by Mark's account, John and Jesus, you know, meet here at the Jordan River. But the stories that develop tell us that they actually met in their mother's wombs. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, yeah. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so in, I want to look on, on verse 4, on the, on the first page where it says, Yochanan the Dipper appeared in the desert, preaching an immersion of repentance for the remission of sin. Okay, such a loaded line there yeah. that I felt it would be good to take a little excursion into those words because uh, which have now upon them countless layers of centuries of what, that, what repentance means, what sin is. Mm -hmm. Take a look. This is an interesting thing. That, take a look at the footnote, uh, footnote 8. Sin comes from the Greek... Yes. Hamartia? Hamartia. Also translated literally as missing the mark. In Greek, it's an archery term. It actually is literally when you draw the bow and you miss the bullseye, you miss the mark. That's the word that they used for okay. sin or wrong. Which is a direct uh, analog to the Hebrew word for sin, chet, which means it's an archery term. Which means missing the target. So, Hamartia and its Hebrew analog are the same. Mm. And sin in the, in the Old Testament means missing the mark. Now this is crucial uh, uh, because, and I don't know enough about this, of when the idea of original sin oh, starts to develops. develop in Christianity. Re and that, that really gets developed um, highly um, by St. Augustine. So we're like fourth century and later it becomes a real theological so, dogma. Hundreds um, of years later. Yeah, but there is an idea of, even in the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, an idea of the way um, somehow there is this pervasive, you know, sinfulness. Um, so it's something that develops over the course of the tradition. But So in the Jewish literature of this time, that we call rabbinic literature, um, playing, taking from the words of the Torah that... <coughs> God will take you back in love, even if you have strayed to the ends of the earth. God, this is all, this is all stuff uh, that it, it's going to be hard, you're going to suffer, there's going to be all kinds of trials, but ultimately God will, if you return, if you return, and the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva, which means return, right? So repent is an interesting word because it means to rethink, right? To reconsider, mm -hmm. that's what repent means. And in the Hebrew, the word is teshuvah, which means to return or respond. Um, re, to, to, yeah, to, if, you, if someone asks you a question, the Hebrew answer for a response is a teshuvah. Uh, it's a response. So um, I'm sharing that because there's a, there's a kind of fog we have to wade through of my, my sort of vague understanding of what, original sin is, is sin inherent in the human being, is it, 
you know, and this is a debate we have to this, to this day. The rabbis have a very jaundiced view of humanity, which basically feels reality-based to me. <laughs> right. um, and it's very much like the, the view of the fathers of the church who said, you know, there is something in us that, that, that tends towards greed, that tends towards selfishness, that tends toward egoism. And we can transcend that and we can overcome that, but it's kind of in us from the get-go. And like you look at a baby, it's the most pure and innocent thing, and it's also the most egoic thing. It's like, me, 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 right? And so both of those are in us from the start. Right, which is also Jewish, the, the classic Jewish understanding, known as in Hebrew, the Yetzer Hara, the inclination to evil, which is, where it, which is considered to be what we're born with, uh, and the Yetzer Hatov, which we're also born with, which is the inclination to transcend that and to, to the good. And much, much, much discussion in rabbinic thought about what our task is to take the inclination to evil and master it and subdue it and transform it into uh, uh, goodness, and that it's an incredible challenge. And that the only reason God tolerates us is because God loves us. Right? The rabbis are very clear about that. that. But we're not irredeemable. But we're also really a hard case. <laughs> and so, uh, so, but sin, in Hebrew and in, and in the Greek, uh, is, similar, is not about our essential nature. Right? It's about missing the mark. And therefore, you can seek repentance and forgiveness and try again. Right. You and miss the mark, and then you, you aim and you try again, and you miss the mark and you aim and you try again. And, and this process of, of, uh, of um, immersion in the waters is an opportunity to essentially reboot, mm -hmm. right? Which would be the contemporary, I think that's a good term to use for it right now, a spiritual reboot, right? And let's do it again. And then when you, I listen to John's, the Baptist's teachings, they're just, they're straight up. Okay, do better, everybody. Do better. You got an extra coat, give it to someone who's cold. You got mm -hmm. more food than you need, feed someone who's hungry. Uh, so that's what I'm hearing and thinking about as I read what John might have been doing. Uh, uh, I wanted to share that. Uh, Susan. I'm wondering if John, if you're thinking that John the Baptist would have done repeated baptisms as people missed the mark and came back. Good question. Oh. I, I don't know historically if he only, the text just says he immersed people, so it doesn't say if they got repeat immersions or not. <laughs> it kind of sounds like immersion made you part of this movement, movement where you were, where you were, your, your clear intention was to be, do better. Yeah. And that's the thing we have to realize, it wasn't just about personal piety, you know, it was it was a movement. That's why it was threatening. If it was just about my personal piety, um, no one would have cared much. John was a threat because people, as they were being immersed by him, they were joining his movement. You know, you have this wave of people who are supporting him and see him as a prophet, and that's why it becomes a threat. Um, and one of the things that, that in Jesus' teaching and in John's teaching that, that makes religious authorities nervous at the time He's baptizing people and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, which sounds like he's taking divine authority. And, and that makes, you know, the priests nervous because that puts them out of business. And then Jesus keeps doing the same thing. He moves among the towns and villages, and he will say to people, 
go, your sins are forgiven. And we see people getting really anxious about this thing. Who is this guy who claims to have the authority to forgive sins? But it wasn't just Jesus doing it. John was doing it too. And that was, that was, I mean, how would that have been heard, Jonathan? Well, I'm just, I, I can only project myself into that situation, right? I, and think about my uh, utter cynicism about the entrenched religious establishment, you know, which lived in Jerusalem, which was, at this point in the Roman Empire, a position that was for sale. Right, the high priest was... The high priest, well, you, you, gave, you gave a million dollars, you got your ambassadorship, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> nothing, to, it's just, that's the point. It's like, uh, I think we can, with, with some validity, uh, retroject what we know about how people are to how they were 2,000 years ago. <laughs> so I, uh, so... I could see myself as utterly skeptical about going up to Jerusalem, all the, uh, the incredible fireworks and um, high pomp of, of that, and all the money that was sort of centered there, and um, the fact that the high priest was, was suspect of being in Rome's pocket and all that stuff. And so a religious revival movement would inevitably be also political. Uh, movement. That's what I'm thinking about. Right. Which is why these movements were seen as threats both to the religious establishment and the political establishment. As, as reformers often are in any tradition around the world, the, the entrenched religious institution, the pro, entrenched political establishment are threatened by, the powers are threatened, um, which is what Hebrew prophets do. They threaten, That's what the they threaten all the powers. That is what the prophets do. And it's important to remember that the Pharisees, the rabbis, are not the priestly establishment. They are an additional sect who both support it, if so want to support the priestly establishment to fulfill the purity laws of the Torah, but are also highly critical of it. So equating the Pharisees with the high priesthood is the, uh, a mistake. Right. Inaccurate. And this is this is this is where scholars start speculating that John was connected to the Qumran community or the Essene movement, though, because the Essene movement believed the temple was corrupt, and so the the sacrifices of the temple were meaningless because the priesthood had been corrupted by Rome, and so the Essenes were a separatist movement um, who went out into the desert to try to live a life of holiness. What is John the Baptist doing? He's a prophetic figure out in the desert trying to live a life of holiness. So I'll give you some of Josephus. And, and we yeah. can mark that geographically, by the way. Right. Because the Jordan by Jericho is just north of the caves of Qumran and around the Dead Sea where the Essene uh, uh, scrolls were found. So this is all within a very close vicinity. Well, we have to remember this whole area is like the size of the state of Vermont, you know? Like, we're talking about a tiny place. Um, where, where, where was, yeah? yeah I just, Carolyn and, and then Gail. Evans. Okay. I just, I, I, a curiosity more than anything. So you're talking about John and Jesus and these guys in the desert. Were there any women mystics back then that were out there in the desert? Well, they don't get recorded, of course. <laughs> um, were there women mystics at this time with John and Jesus? So we looked last week 
that in the Jesus movement, and we don't have much history about the John movement that, that was the precursor to the Jesus movement, but we know that in the Jesus movement, there were very active women who were recorded in the Gospels, not um, just as women, but by name. Their names are recorded. Um, so undoubtedly, um, if a few names of women make it into the texts, then there were a lot more names that didn't make it into the text because mostly only men are writing and only men are being remembered and recorded. Um, that said, some of these movements were male-focused movements, like the Essenes. So the Essenes were a, a quasi-monastic movement that actually did see, um, th that were celibate, by and large. And we'll look at what Josephus says about that. It's, it's something that doesn't exist in Judaism today, but there were these sort of quasi-monastic celibate experiments. Um, so we'll jump back to Gail, but let me read what he says about... Um, the Essenes. For three forms of philosophy are pursued among the Judeans. This is from his book, The Jewish War. So he wrote The Jewish Antiquities and The Jewish War. The members of one are Pharisees, of another Sadducees, and the third school, who certainly are reputed to cultivate seriousness, are called Essenes. Although Judeans by ancestry, they are even more mutually affectionate than the others. Isn't that an odd kind of, What kind of, what was they're, the original then? More, I don't know, more mutually affectionate. Um, whereas these, and, and they lived in community as a brotherhood. Um, whereas these men shun the pleasures as vice, they consider self-control and not succumbing to the passions as virtue. And although there is among them a disdain for marriage, Adopting the children of outsiders while they are still malleable enough for the lessons they regard them as family and instill in them their principles of character. Without doing away with marriage or the succession resulting from it, they nevertheless protect themselves from the wanton ways of women, having been persuaded that none of them preserves her faithfulness to one man. So the Essenes had a, a definitive anti-woman streak in the movement. Um, um, sounds like the Shakers. Sounds like many a monastic movement across many religious traditions. Yeah. The Shakers let the women well, I don't think that's what they meant. I imagine, as in most monasteries, some and many of them probably were, but I don't think that's the implication. And adopting children and Right, right. And that's what the Shakers did. The Shakers had celibate male and female communities, and children could be raised in the community, and then when they reached adulthood could choose to stay or move on. Um, so you had a similar movement with the Essenes. Um, so... He goes on and gives even more details, and this is where we start seeing the shape of what becomes the Christian movement, something very similar, including monasticism, which takes root very quickly in Christianity. The Essenes are despisers of riches, and so very communal as to earn our admiration. There is no one to be found among them who has more than another. For they have a law that those who come to join them must let whatever they have be common to the whole order. Wow. So that among them all there is no appearance of either poverty or excessive wealth. Everyone's possessions are intermingled with every other's possessions, as if they were all brothers within a single family. Now let me read a line to you from the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. We're told that... 
All who believed were together and held all things in common. They would sell all their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. So the early Christian movement was holding property in common as was the early Essene movement. Um, So that's another point of, of relationship. We saw John saying, if you have one coat, give it to someone who doesn't. That was an Essene principle. Um, and we also know that Philo, uh, in first century Greece, so in the Sinai Peninsula and in those environs, this wasn't just a Judean uh, movement, that there was an ascetic uh, kind of um, uh, uh, retreat from society right. going on all over this region. So, yeah. I don't I don't know what the numbers would have been and I don't know that Josephus tells us what they are um, it was clearly a significant enough movement to be known remembered and recorded about by historians but I would imagine it, it was a smaller movement just because of its separatist nature um, so it's separatist nature and the, the sort of self-selection right. Uh, right. Of, of that of that sort of so just to give you another sense of the, the overlap between these movements, Josephus on the Essenes again, he says, they have no one city, but in every city dwell many of them. And if any of the sect arrive from elsewhere, all is made available to them as it were their own. And they go to those they have never seen before as if long acquaintances. Thus they carry nothing at all with them in their journeys, except weapons for defense against thieves. Accordingly, in every city, there is one appointed specifically to take care of strangers and to provide them with garments and other necessities. In their clothing and deportment, they resemble children in fear of their teachers. They change neither their garments nor their shoes until they are torn to pieces or worn out by time. They neither buy nor sell anything to one another, but each gives what he has to whomever needs it and receives in exchange what he needs himself. And even if there's nothing given any return, they're allowed to take anything they want from whomever they please. Um, so Jesus says things almost exactly like this. So we have in, in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a similar account of his sending of his disciples. This is Luke's version. Luke says, then Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority Um, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving the town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news. Jesus is sending them out basically by Essene guidelines as to how you're to go out, possessing nothing. Um, So even though Jesus and John um, aren't remembered in the text as Essenes, they were undoubtedly shaped by those movements, and probably, as Josephus himself did, apprenticed in those movements. You know, Josephus went and lived among them and then broke with them. So it may be that John lived among them, broke with them, Uh, Jesus studied with John, and then shifted his message somewhat from John's. It may also be that these were values that were very extant right, right. in the time, and that they're parallel. Right. Uh, right. It doesn't necessarily mean that they want, they were directly influenced one by the other. 
Um, yeah. Gail, but it does you, give you a context. You had a question some time back. I'm just remembering. Do you remember what it was? Yes. Oh, good. So, so it's, a, it's a fairly complicated question, but I'll make it as clear as I can. So my understanding in Leviticus is that we can't actually offer a sacrifice until we have made recompense yeah. for yeah. sin. Okay? And I'm not saying that, and I don't know that that was really observed. So she said in Leviticus, I'll just go repeat this section by section, that, that you can't make a sacrifice for your sin until you've actually made amendment or recompense for that sin. Um, so, and I don't know if that was actually observed. Right. Okay. I don't know, this is my question then, when people enter the mikvah, mm-hmm. and I've seen the number of mikvahs at Herod's palace, mm-hmm. so, right. I don't know if that immersion... Gave, recomp- gave forgiveness without having to do anything first. Right. And this goes to Susan's question, I think, about are you forgiven without having to actually do, do anything? Right. And, and that goes back to the way Josephus remembers. So the gospel records say it was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. But Josephus qualifies that in his account. And he says, in John's opinion, um, for only... First, he says he commanded them to exercise virtue, piety, righteousness toward one another. And he says, for only thus, in John's opinion, would the baptism he administered be acceptable. Uh Namely, if they used it to obtain not pardon for some sins, but rather the cleansing of their bodies, inasmuch as it was taken for granted that their souls had been purified already by justice. So, yeah. So in classical Judaism of the time, was the mikvah understood that it only was effective if you had done an inner purification first, or was it just for the outer ritual purification? I think that this that John is doing a new application of mikvah, because mikvah's function in classical Judaism of that time is ritual purification. If you have come in contact with blood, or in contact with the dead, uh, or, and you need to, based on the laws of the Torah, um, be reintegrated into the community. What, if, you had, if you had contact with the dead or contact with blood, it, according to the ancient taboos and understandings, that was the realm of God or the realm of death, and you had to be reintegrated into the community by being ritually bathed. So I'm guessing that the merging of mikvah with um, um, purification of your soul is one of the innovations of this time. That is my guess. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm -hmm. Um, The other interesting thing here is that um, part of the reason, you know, scholars say that one of the ways we can know um, if something is likely quite historical is the principle of embarrassment. If it was something that was embarrassing to the movement, and yet so much a part of the historical memory you couldn't erase that you had to record it, it's probably, it probably really happened. And so it was somewhat embarrassing to the early Christian movement that Jesus was baptized by John in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness or the remission of sins. 
right? And so what was Jesus, who Christians remember theologically as being without sin, what's he doing being immersed in the waters in this repentance? So um, we'll come back around to that, but I see a hand over here. <laughs> but the repentance and the things that you do and all that, that seems to be what you what you do in this body here you walk. And I, I, maybe this is just me and I got mixed up. <laughs> but I thought the soul is thought of as as in Judaism as not being um, you know, as as not being bad, like you know, like that idea of original sin. I just, I, I, I thought we don't like that. I never heard it described like you described in Matthew. Mm. That it's like, you know, and then Rabbi said the different inclinations. But are we talking about you know, our what we do and think kind of thing? Right. As the same as with your soul? So, so the, the Christian teaching, so, so the question is, the question is, um, is about the soul and is the understanding that the soul that there, there's in Judaism, that there's no original sin, that the soul is pure. And then there are these things we do with our actions. Um, in Christian teaching, the idea is that the fundamental dimension of the human person, and this is Jewish teaching, is the imago dei, the divine image. That's the foundational dimension of the human being. We're created in the image of God, and it is called good. Um, and then, in Christian teaching, there is our, our fallen nature, our tendency towards selfishness and evil. Um, that sort of is like the muck and mud that covers over the foundational truth of who we are, the image of God. And so, we have to repent and return to that image that is our true self. Um, and so the image of God in classical Christian teaching and in, in like Catholic or Anglican or Orthodox teaching is that the image of God is not erased by our fallenness. Um, it's more covered over. In extreme Western Protestant thought, you get this late development, this late theological development called utter depravity. And in those teachings, human beings are utterly depraved. And because of that fallen nature, the image of God is effectively smashed, wiped out, gone. Um, that is not classical Christian and obviously not Jewish teaching. Because um, I, w- I was brought up a Quaker. Yeah. There's no baptism. Yeah. But part of it is that it's back to, I was always described to me that it's back to the original teachings of Jesus, yeah. which... Uh, uh, and that you don't need that, you know, that it's, it's not that you, you're perfect and everything's fine, but, but there's something in you, that image of God, that ends. It's foundation. So, so uh, uh, Patricia was raised a Quaker, where part of the purpose of, part of the idea of the Quakers was that you do not need to be baptized in order to. Uh, just not. And all of this is not a part of the tradition. And, and this is part of medieval European uh, and late medieval and European it's, history. And it started in the mid 1600s against, against that kind of, that kind of extreme and, Calvinism. And, yeah. and what happens in the tradition, you get this development, you get so baptism becomes 
magical thinking becomes attached to baptism, okay? So clearly in these early movements, it was an initiatory rite about reorienting. It was a commitment. I'm going to turn, and I'm going to, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to symbolize that turning by this, this ritual act. And so it was about your internal commitment expressed through this outer action. Um, in the early Christian movement, it's very much the same. You, that is the initiatory rite into the tradition. Um, is this washing. Uh, because this magical thinking develops around it, you get, by the time of Constantine, this understanding that, well, baptism, it'll wash away all of your sins up until the point you're baptized, and those are just gone. But any sins after that, you're accountable for, and you'll be judged based on those. And so the legend is that Constantine postponed baptism until his deathbed. <laughs> to be sure he got all the sins washed away. And, and so when you think it's this magical rite, you know, that's going to just magically do something to you as opposed to an external symbol of this internal reorientation, then, then so that's what the Quakers are rebelling against, this sort of magical thinking that gets attached to the rite rather than really the original intent of the rite. Well, that was a good answer, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Helen. <coughs> Away from all the um, religious concepts of uh, <clears throat> our original, what we're born with, I was reading for a while now about studies that they were doing on people who were heroes. You may have been may have seen that, and they, when they questioned them, why did they, without, why did they do what they did? And they lived. <laughs> after they did what they did to save someone, and they said they have no answer mm -hmm. to why that there was an instinct. Mm -hmm. They didn't think. They threw themselves in front of the car. They <laughs> jumped off the bridge and pulled somebody out. And when they were, they said they have no idea where, and they never would have, if they thought about it, they would have known not to do that. It's right. too dangerous. But that, so they're studying if there's yeah. something instinctive in, yes. in us. What's sometimes called spontaneous altruism. Oh, that's a nice word. Right, but they couldn't explain it. Yeah. Right. What made them do it? They mm -hmm. never thought. They and so there's and it carried them on. beyond the boundaries of it wasn't just for their family unit or just for their religious organization no, no, or something. Stranger, you know, it's yeah. They saw yeah. a baby and right. going to be run over, and they never right. thought and. Right. And afterward, they realized they could have been killed. Their family <laughs> would suffer. What What Why made you, you bring this up in response to where we are in the conversation? What, the original sin question? Of, right, the idea that somehow we're born with good or evil. Oh, right, both but, tendencies. But they're saying, yeah. science yeah. is saying, yeah. uh, maybe we're, this, there's an instinct. Yeah, beautiful. Like the guys so, in I, London with the terrorists. Oh, well, when yeah, there's yeah, countless, yeah, countless yeah, examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to pull back for a second and then hone back in. So what, what Matthew was describing is an eternal human conundrum of we organize ourselves with rituals to symbolize our inner intent. Right? That's what people do. When you get married, you create a ritual, and it's, it's to symbolize the intent of the couple to be committed to one another. Right? Rituals have that amazing power and purpose. And then inevitably, we interpret the ritual as having magical uh, 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 properties. That if you do it, you're changed. Right? And so when you, when you read the words of the prophets or the words of Jesus, 
in the Bible, it says over and over, the, whichever prophet you can say, well, actually, we're going to do this, look at this next week. God doesn't want, God hates your offering, right? God despises your new moons and festivals. What does God want of you? Only this, to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Because we, whether we're secular or religious, don't kid yourself, secular people, uh, we all get confused that somehow our external actions can magically change us inside. Um, uh, so I just wanted to share that, but I wanted to let you yeah, go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, Hattie? Oh, don't, don't be scared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about our Sunday service. Yes? Every Sunday in the Episcopal Church, we follow a pattern, and at a certain point within that pattern, we are forgiven. Right. That week. And <laughs> so right. we're forgiven the next week and the next week. Right. And so sometimes I think to myself, this is too easy. <laughs> this is like a cop-out almost. Like, oh, you're forgiven this week, but what you do during the week, right. it's okay because you're going to be forgiven again and again and again. Yeah. So there's a certain validity that I don't perceive there. I think mm. it's a little bit wishy-washy. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so Patty's referencing that we have a, a moment in, in the Christian liturgy, um, and it, it, it comes before we approach the altar um, in which we kneel down and we confess that we have not loved God with our whole heart, that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, that, that we've... We haven't done it. Once again, we've fallen short. And then, then over the congregation is proclaimed God's abiding love and forgiveness and the empowerment of the Spirit for us to, to go and live a life of goodness. You know? and, um, and so we, we are reminded of that every week, of those two things, that, hey, we keep screwing up, and hey, God keeps loving us. I think it's too much leeway. <laughs> okay, well then, you may need a harsher church service. Right. You, you might need to go to one of those really rigid Calvinist utter depravity people. So, we want to keep moving with our text here. Are there some specifically digging into the text questions? Yeah. yeah. I did have a question when you were referencing the original sin. Um, because I know in the Catholic Church, and it happened pretty early on, they got together and decided that we're born with the sin, just like on our black mark on our on our soul. And babies can't even get into heaven if they haven't been baptized. They have to go to limbo. Um, the Catholic Church actually got rid of limbo. Did they? Yeah. 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 It's too much so fun. It's, yeah. I wonder. I just. I wonder, like, where did they come up with that? Oh. So, let's not even go there, because it has nothing to do with the text. Um, but where do, where do human beings come up with these sort of absurd exclusionary principles? Like, well, that's what leads me to think we've got original sin, because we keep making that stuff up. Like, we, we have a tendency, of course, there is that tendency towards just, like, spontaneous altruism and joy and love and compassion. And there's this part of us that wants to draw lines and boundaries and exclude and shut people out and, um, and do what's good for only me or only my kind or only my group. 
And, uh, you know, the doctrine of original sin, it can develop in these, you know, absurd ways, but it's really just speaking to the human intuition that, like, hey, we all fall short. Why is that? Like, hey, we all have an ego that wants to defend and protect itself. Hey, we all... We all keep doing this. It seems intrinsic to the human condition, like that right. that generation and gener after generation and person after person, we don't get it right, right, and we try, try again. That's what it's pointing at. It's not saying that you know we're all like you know curse words that I don't want to use, but um, <laughs> it's it's just that intuition that hey, something's a little off in us. And we have the capacity for self-transcendence, nevertheless. Beautiful. Which is, uh, to bring us back to, to, the text. to the text, which is the impulse behind a John the Baptist. Right. Right? right? You, we sense that we're, we sense our, our possibilities. How are we going to manifest it? And those human beings who happen to be oriented towards wanting to be, wanting to, wanting to grow in that direction, uh, have to, have to, find out a way to kind of find each other. That's what a spiritual revival movement is. Right. And then, of course, again, because we're human beings, every spiritual revival movement then uh, loses its spark at some point and needs another revival. Right. So the religious impulse is an impulse to transcend our venal, incredibly corruptible selves. Um, and yet we sense, as it says in Genesis, which is one of the things I cherish about it, God looked at, made the human beings, and it was good. They have a divine imprint. Whatever that means, you understand what it's aiming at, right? Does it mean an eternal soul? Does, I don't know what it, that, that's why I didn't want to respond to the conversation about what's the soul right now. That's a, it depends which era, which century, and which sect of Judaism or Christianity you're speaking with. But the, the underlying, this fundamental idea of, of uh, biblical uh, uh, thinking that we are made in the divine image and that it's good. Mm. And now what? You know, there's something redeemable about us. And we're going to keep searching for it. And we know what it takes. It, and it, we, have, we have screamed in our ears all the time. Pursue justice, love mercy, you know, and, uh, and then we can't do it. Because Why? I don't know. So, so I want to give us another chunk of text here, just to stay with text, to see how these movements keep intertwining. So we've got this John movement, and we also want to look at what Mark is doing. He's actually drawing symbolic parallels between Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and John. That's sort of embedded in what's happening here. But as we progress through the gospel tradition, so this is from Matthew's gospel, but we see, so John has been executed at this point. He's been killed by Herod. And in a way, John's movement is still active with disciples, but its leader is gone. Mm. Who's going to keep things moving? And Jesus sort of steps in and, and mm. fills that gap. He keeps the movement going. Um, and so some of John's disciples join him, and some don't. Um, and we still have embedded in that Mandean tradition that sees John as the last great final prophet. They, they see Jesus as a false teacher. You know, no, really? John, yeah. Wow. John was the real final guy. He was the Messiah, and Jesus wasn't. So, like, still embedded in that tradition is this, this old tension that goes back to this, this break. Um, so in Matthew's Gospel, we have Jesus entering the temple. 
Uh, he's in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, and the chief priests and elders in the temple approach him uh, as he's teaching and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Where's your authority to do this come from? Who do you think you are? And Jesus then tries to catch them in a, a trap. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question also. Well, that's Jewish. Yeah. yeah right? <laughs> so he doesn't give an answer. He gives a question. You want to say something about that? Yeah. So I will, I will ask you one question also. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's this question. Did the baptism of John, John's immersing people out in the Jordan, did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And then they huddle, and they argue with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So he set a trap for them. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. <laughs> and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. <laughs> but he's, he's again drawing on the authority of John and the respect among the people of John to set this up. And, and then he gives them a teaching. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. <laughs> Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Wow. That's, that is such... So, so he's saying... That is so cool. Um, so the, the first says... Uh, uh, the, 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 the man had two sons. The first says... I will not go work in the vineyard, but later changed his mind and went. That's the, 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 the tax collectors and the prostitutes. prostitutes. Whereas the other said, I go, and then never does anything. That's you guys. That's the criticism <laughs> of the religious authorities. The religious establishment. Right. So, wow. Um, so, so again, we see the confrontation beginning to brew. And in weeks ahead, we'll see this confrontation come to a boil. It, it does once with John, and then it does again with Jesus, and we have yet another execution. But these are the buttons that are starting to get pushed um, by these two prophets that, that, that set off what happens. Um, and eventually, when we get into the social world, the reason time and again he uses tax collectors as an example is really significant, um, and the reason he, he, he makes a point of being seen eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Um, Maybe we should talk about that now. Should we? Yeah. Or Elijah, Alicia. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the tax collectors. I was so captivated okay. by that. Uh, so who are the tax collectors? So 
it, Borg, uh, let, me, let me just uh, look at my notes here. This was so illuminating. Um, sorry. Uh, here it is. Um, I'm just going to read you a tiny bit of this, and feel free to jump in. Um, who are tax collectors, and why, are, why is Jesus singling them out? Listen to this. Roman rule had direct economic consequences with an immense impact on the Jewish social world. It brought a second system of taxation, which was added to the system of tithes contained within the Torah. So, all Jews who are loyal to Judaism and Jerusalem are required by the Torah to give tithes. Tithes that are laid out in the Torah that are very explicit, that are tithes for the temple upkeep, tithes for the poor, right? And uh, um, the tithes supported the priest, the temple and temple staff, known as the Levites, and the poor. Designed for an agricultural society, each tithe was a certain percentage of a farmer's production. Taken together, the various tithes, and this was still an agriculturally based society, added up to slightly over 20% a year, okay? All the different tithes. To this system of taxation, the Romans added their own. The two with the greatest effect on farmers were the land tax, which was 1% of your land's value, and the crop tax, which was 12.5% of your produce, went to Rome. There were other Roman taxes as well, customs, toll, tributes. But even without them, the combined total of Jewish and Roman taxes on the farmers amounted to about 35%. This was a crushing amount. Uh, moreover, the way in which the Roman taxes were collected exacerbated the problem. Rome sold the privilege of collecting taxes to tax farmers. Who, farmers, you know, that's um, in quotes. Uh, they were tax farmers who paid Rome a fixed amount and whose own profit depended on the percentage they could add to their take, to what they could shake down. Right? Those were the tax collectors. And that's why John, they come to him to be baptized, right? And, and they say, what then should we do? And he says, take no more than what is required of you. Because they were, they're paying a, a low wage for this work, but they actually made a living by adding more onto it. You know, what, what else they could That's get. That's how they could do yeah. it. And so John is, is, is condemning that practice. So what I want to add to that is that the Pharisees, who we call the rabbis, they are, they, it's, they are, it's very important to them that tithes are properly um, dispensed, uh, uh, given to the, to the, the, they are there to uphold the um, structure of Jewish law. The, and so for them, the tax collectors who were Jews were worse than Gentiles because according to Borgen, it was, it sounds very cogent, um, if you're a, um, a farmer and you can't afford the taxes, but Rome has, your, has military and political authority over you, and the temple is part of your group cohesive uh, tradition. Who are you going to give to first? Right. So you have your, it's set up this, this choice. Do I follow my religious observance and, and uh, observe Torah, or do I pay Rome? Because the temple isn't going to come after me and throw me in prison if I don't pay them, but Rome will. Um, so if you're looking for a typical uh, uh, and persuasive economic explanation for the revolt against Rome. Mm -hmm. right.
how many other revolts have been because I mean in Iran they just raised gas prices and mm -hmm. and cities erupted and then Iran just slaughtered hundreds of its own citizens just now um, so uh, uh, that's why I was like lit up by understanding this for the first time that it wasn't just about religious um, uh, or ritual uh, defilement or it wasn't about necessarily idols in, you know, having to bow to idols. There was something much more elemental mm -hmm. uh, going on here, which is that the rabbis who were, the Pharisees who were devoted to the upkeep of the Jewish system of laws were being actively undermined by other Jews. So they referred to tax collectors as worse than Gentiles, right? They are like out of the, so when Jesus cites a tax collector that he's having a meal with, right. that is an incredible uh, symbolic gesture by him. I wanted to add one more thing that I gleaned from this reading, which is that it also might explain the militant Jewish sects, the zealots, mm -hmm. who wanted to throw off Roman rule. They also weren't just being religiously uh, uh, um, motivated, right? They, 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 the tax burden of Rome was, was killing them. And it was also, um, uh, what's the word? It was fraying. It was, it was really tearing apart the fabric of Jewish society focused around the temple. It will also help you understand and help me understand why Rome decided to destroy the temple. Right. Uh, so uh, for all kinds of reasons, not just these, this, and religion and politics, there's no way to tease them out here. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were, so I wanted to share that. And so, so, so John, John and... Oh, the prostitutes uh, are in that category. Right. Why? Why? Because of biblical prohibitions against prostitutes. Right, so they're seen... So John and Jesus recognize that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are also victims of the system. They're also victims of Rome. They also were trying to make a living and trying to support their families. And so... But so, according to the Jewish establishment, the prostitutes are also morally absolutely out of bounds. So the fact that Jesus makes room, first John before him, welcomes them into the waters and says, hey, you're forgiven. you got a fresh start. Like, but the community has said, no, they're beyond the pale now. We're not going to reintegrate them into community. And John is doing that, and then Jesus is doing that after him. And then, and then they're criticizing the religious elites and saying, hey, look, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who you hate so much they're actually entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Um, and that is a critique that Jesus also renders, and then we'll get all these hands, against the Pharisees who are committed to and, um, uh, pre and, and occupied with not exclusively the, the ritual and uh, coherence of the Jewish community centered around Jerusalem, they're also deeply preoccupied, as you know if you've studied rabbinic literature, with moral behavior. They're not just, they're not two-dimensional, but for them, anyone who's undermining the economic and kind of uh, uh, um, social fabric of the Jewish community is, it, as a Jew, is considered outside the pale. So, uh, but, and th this is one of the reasons, too, we see the response of the Essenes and then the early Christian community, the response to this overwhelming burden of taxation, 
that's part of why these communitarian movements are emerging. We can't make it individually, but we can make it together. If we hold all things in common and we hold all things equally, they're leveling the hierarchy of you're, you're wealthy and you're poor. These movements are collapsing that gap and saying, um, if we pool our resources, we can make it. We can survive. Wow. Um, yeah, back here. Um, yeah. <coughs> was, okay. it only, was it only the Jewish communities that were restive against the Romans, or were other parts of the Roman Empire also upset with the Romans? And if so, if so, is it possible because only the Jewish communities had to pay tithes to their religious leaders and the rest were pagans or whatever? Yeah, so what were other communities under Roman occupation also restive and, and you know, against Rome? Yes. Um, part of the reason this is so extreme for the Jewish community is monotheistic principles that really don't allow you to make sacrifice to the emperor um, and that you have this taxation system required by your religion and now you're being doubly taxed. So the, the burden was felt by this community in a way that it wasn't by other maybe polytheistic communities that were held under um, Roman rule, but certainly there were other um, areas of unrest under Roman occupation. Um, Lenore. Lenore. I, I The procurator. The Roman official, he's a low-level civil servant, paid, eh, you know, above a soldier, under the governor, etc. He's going to make his money through bribery, corruption, and what he skims off mm. of what the tax farmers get. So the tax farmer is now caught in another vice. Right. Right. Um, and has, has no choice because he has to give up some of what he's going to get. Right back to the procurator or Pontius Pilate or at the time, right. you know, the one that we know, who is extraordinarily corrupt. corrupt. So this whole system yeah. is, is corrupt. With, yeah. Yeah. And so 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 what she's saying is that the thank you. The the procurator was also probably like, you know, pinching money from the tax farmers. You know, it goes up the chain and he's mm -hmm. saying Here's what Rome is demanding, but here's what I'm demanding on top of it. And you better not just pay Rome, you better pay me. So you, you've got a system that's just corrupt on every level, um, much yeah. like today. Yeah. So, so getting to the point where Jesus says, give it, render unto Caesar. What is, so you've got the Sakari, you've got the Essenes, the you've got all of these groups of people who are... I uh, have to render unto to Caesar, because Rome doesn't care. And I want to render unto God. God. God because I'm a Jew and this is my life. And Jesus is being brought to Pontius Pilate and he sees this. Now, John was, and now Jesus is before, and there's that, uh, again, it's, it's stories and it's our stories. Jesus did not answer when, yeah. John, in the different texts. Yeah. Which well, text is that? Uh, it, it, the, it, the, the passion, the different passions that we have. You get different responses. Yes. You get like yes. Pilate asking what is yes. truth. And yeah, yeah, yes. sometimes, yeah. Yeah, so you've got this going back. And Jesus seeing this, when they say he was the savior, he was the savior of the Jews because he didn't, he didn't say rise up, my fellow fighters. He didn't do that. He said, oh my God, Rome's going to bulldoze the Huh. When he said in three days, I just, it, all of this is coming to me. I had never, 
You know, I'm always seeing Jesus as my savior. <laughs> he was the savior of, of his known world mm -hmm. by just taking on the cross and being crucified. He was a Jew in his time, saving his people. And if, if you can hear that without theological overlay, I hear a point you're making, but it's an uneasy point. <laughs> oh, oh, no, 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 I want you to talk, because I don't, I don't, I'm not in this story. Well, well, with the Caesar thing, Jesus often answers in elliptical ways where you think you know what he means, but then you realize, oh, I don't know what he means. So he, he's asked one point, you know, about the taxation and stuff, and um, uh, he asks one of his inquisitors, I think it's a Pharisee, um, they're asking about the tax and rendering unto Rome, and he says, well, show me a denarius. And he pulls a denarius out of his pocket, which some scholars say he's just outed the guy for having a coin with the emperor's imprint on it, which <laughs> he shouldn't have had if he was, you know. Um, but he says, whose face is on it? He says, Caesar's. And then Jesus responds, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God's what is God's. Now the question is, well you can hear that as saying give the coins to Caesar, but you can also hear it as everything is God's and nothing is Caesar's. Um, like it's, it's such an ambiguous response. So he often responds ambiguously so as to not get caught in the traps that are being posed to him. Um, so what does he mean there? Is he saying pay your taxes? Or is he saying, hey nothing's really Caesar's and everything belongs to God and if you're a Jew you know that. Walking, you don't know what he's saying. He's walking that line, he's walking that line constantly. Life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Down to the very end. Yeah. Thank you. Karen, you wanted to say something. Um, yeah, I was going to address the prostitutes. Um, going back to this question here about where, where are the women? Right. And in right. classical um, feminist reading of any of these texts, prostitute is a code word for women who don't... Um, <laughs> Submit to the, the patriarchal. Right. Oh, good right. point. Right. Good point. And so, by the, um, the, the terminology of right. the victor or the you know the writer, will view those women. Right. Derogatorily. Yeah. But one could also see okay, these are women who are also outside of these the system. Systems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the read that that it's those who put a group on the outside who then labeled them. And so that the prostitutes and the sinners, that's the label society has given these people. Society is calling them sinners. Society is calling them prostitutes. Um, uh, and so the idea that these are perhaps, maybe some of these women are prostitutes and this is their only means of survival you know, within the world that they live in. Um, but also maybe these are women who are just bucking the societal and patriarchal norms and so society calls them prostitutes as a slur, as a way of um, Oh, thanks for clarifying them. that. Yeah. That's yeah, very that's important. Good, yeah. Very important because if they didn't, if they weren't part of some man's household. Then they were just simply. Who were they? Right. right. They were out, outside of the social structure. Right. Uh -huh. And Jesus is continually going to the people outside of the social structure. Right. When I read that about Jesus' behavior over and over again, He's challenging who's in and who's out mm -hmm. within the Jewish community, right? The tax collectors and the prostitutes who are being shunned by the politics of the Jewish world, he, he reaches out to and eats with them, has meals with them. And uh, the, the, that's uh, who you sit down and eat with, even today, 
but especially in that society uh, uh, at that time, indicated who was in and who was out. So let's say we substitute the word prostitute for something else. That's Good idea. The uppity women. How about the uppity women? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Nasty women. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Thank yeah. you so much. Get that one? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> what's that? What do you want? Oh, oh, well, um, so we, we didn't round out exactly. We started with the story begins with Jesus being baptized, right? Um, and, and I want to come back to that principle of embarrassment because we see in, in the text, um, we have John say in the opening here um, that the whole land of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem came out to him and were being immersed in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. And he was clothed in camel hair and wore a belt of skins around his loins and he ate locusts and wild honey. Wow. He preached saying, after me will come one more powerful than I am, of whom I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I immersed you in water but he will immerse you in Holy Spirit. Wow. Um, now, there's, we have to always question a text like this. Is this an historical memory, or is this the Christian community sort of framing John's words to, you know, as a handoff to Jesus? Um, but, but the framing is also remembering the prophets who preceded them. Oh, right, right. So the framing, it, whether... So whether um, so it, it's plausible to me, and, and I would I would think that the the early Christ, Jewish Christian movement that is writing this and has competitors who are still thinking that John John is the, our guy our guy <laughs> are writing a text that says John is just preparing the way for the real and and that would be the feeling the sentiment for those who had been in this John movement and he's killed, and you're devastated. But now Jesus rises up, and he takes the reins. And it's like, oh, John was preparing the way for mm -hmm. Jesus. So, and so that, that sentiment and that understanding can be then retrojected back. Um, did John, in his own self-consciousness, see all that he was doing as being preparing the way for Jesus? No, probably not. He saw himself leading a movement in its own right. But after the fact, it was seen that he was, in one sense, preparing the way for Jesus. Um, but, but to be aware of that, and, and this goes back to that discomfort that what is Jesus doing being baptized by John? Um, and the discomfort, uh, as it moves through the Gospels, Mark doesn't seem to be overly concerned with it here. Um, by the time we get to John's Gospel, written in the late first century, um, the text sort of drops the baptism out altogether. So this is the way John records the same scene. John's written around the year 100, Mark around the year 70. Um, John sees Jesus approaching as he's baptizing people in the Jordan. And he says, this is he of whom it is written. I send my messenger before my... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong text. <laughs> I'm in the wrong text. Um, let's see. 
Here it is. Okay. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Do you notice what's missing in that text? Jesus the baptism. Jesus didn't get baptized. In it's John. Just, it's just, it's maybe hinted at. But it's, it's just not there. It, John says, this is the one who takes away the sins of the world, and he saw the Spirit descend on him, but he never gets immersed. In Mark, we're told John's preaching a baptism for the repentance of remission of sins, and he immerses Jesus, and then Jesus sees the Spirit descend on him. So you see the way the story has shifted, and that uncomfortable element that, that somehow Jesus is lessened by being baptized by John is just deleted. It's gone. Um, and of course, this comes from the later theological uneasiness, that if Jesus is sinless, why is he being baptized um, in, in the waters for remission of sin? Mark didn't have that uneasiness because he didn't have the same heavy-handed theology around sin, I think. He understood missing the mark, that, that what John is doing, you're entering a movement, you're reorienting yourself. Um, that repentance was about turning and reorienting yourself, and Jesus is joining that reorientation and that movement. So there isn't the same anxiety in Mark when he's writing, but by the time of John, that anxiety has emerged, and so he amends the story slightly. So as a new student of this, uh, uh, it, it's fascinating to me to and why there's and understand and to understand why there's scholarly consensus about Mark being earlier. And then John being the latest, because you see the um, the the legend grow, right? And you see and I, an overt theological trajectory kind of emerging. And a, tra a theological trajectory. Karen, you want to add? Uh, maybe other people in the room have this confusion. I never knew that the Gospel of John wasn't John the Baptist. Right? Oh. oh no. So no. John. So the Gospel of John is thought to be was traditionally designated the Gospel of John because there's a disciple in the Jesus movement named John yeah, right. who is remembered as being close to Jesus. Um, and so that Gospel is associated with John the disciple or John the apostle, not John the Baptist. I understand that now, yeah. but, but now as you're saying this, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes when you're trying, you're, you're trying to bring your group together. Right. And now as you're saying, there was this whole other group that were really followers of John the Baptist. And how helpful it is now to have a Gospel in this voice of John that is revising the story a little bit and setting the hierarchy now, right. establishing something that's very important to the bringing of all these people together. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now, that can make some sense as you're saying this. So now John is really relinquishing right. the upper hand and, and handing it over in a much smaller Right. We even have John say in one text, I must decrease that he may increase. Huh. And is that from John, the Gospel of John also? I don't remember where that shows up. Is that John's Gospel? Do you know, Susan? It sounds to me like John's Gospel, but I'll, I'll look it up and see. Okay. Um, Actually, it so, sounds like um, Thomas. Ah, well, but it's, it's definitely one of the canonical Gospels. But okay. yeah. 
Um, can I ask so, yeah, yeah, please jump in. Oh, let, let me just jump in. Helen. Yeah, yeah um, let's stick with uh, oh, uh, so, going to Elijah. I, I was going to go to Elijah for a few minutes. So, so this is so this is all so illuminating to me, learning from Matthew and from Borg about the history and Jesus as an historical figure, what we can ascertain and all that. Mm -hmm. And now we're also in this class looking at the um, the literary, cultural kind of legendary allusions that then get incorporated into the story of Jesus that both validates his, uh, um, his um, uh, mission as a Jew and that also eventually over time then also becomes a theological statement about, about Jesus being beyond human in so somehow. But uh, so, so it's also interesting to spend a few minutes today and we'll be going back and forth between these levels to look at what all Jews knew about in the first century uh, as their hero stories and how they would then model a contemporary hero on those stories. And so one of the things you need to know about Judaism in that regard is that there were considered to be really two great prophets, Moses and Elijah. Right? And part of their... Moses is... Because in the stories of the Bible, they are the ones and the only ones who each in their own way... First, Moses, of course, goes to the top of Mount Sinai mm -hmm. in the book of Exodus. Some centuries later, Jesus living maybe the 9th century BCE, there's the story about Jesus uh, running away to the wilderness, um, spending 40 days and 40 nights there, not eating or drinking. Um, these are so Elijah, when his stories are told, several his his story is modeled after Moses' story, and Elijah goes to the mountain of God, <coughs> where he's he's a, he's at the mountain. And there's thunder and there's lightning in this famous story, earthquake, but God wasn't in the fire and God wasn't in the earthquake. All allusions to the Mount Sinai story right. from Exodus. And then a still small voice, or called the Mamadaka, the fine sound of silence. God, Elijah hears God's voice in the silence. It's a whole fabulous story. So... And then, yeah. the Jesus story, he goes up on Mount Tabor with two of his disciples. Who does he see? And a cloud comes, and what happens? Moses and Elijah appear. And he shines the way Moses did when he went up on the mountain. So, and where was these that? links, Mount Tabor. I Mount Tabor is in the Lower Galilee. It's very close to Nazareth. And it's where it was one of where, where Jesus would have walked. And it's, Mount Tabor is an interesting mountain. Tabor means navel. Uh, because Mount Tabor, unlike most of the other mountains in the most other mountains, but especially in the Galilee, which are a series of it's more like the Catskills, comes out of the plain of the Jezreel Valley and just like it's just there. And there's it's a it's a beautiful view from the top. There's an old old church on top. So Mount Tabor would be considered to be a special mountain. So uh, so the, anyway, that's Mount Tabor. And it means navel. Did you know that? I didn't know that. And uh, so, since so many, uh, so much sacred uh, um, uh, maps, you know, not geographical maps, but the sacred maps humans make, consider places to be the navel of the universe, you know, the place out of which mm -hmm. life emerges. So, Tabor had that reputation too in the north. Uh, so, Jesus goes up there, 
and hangs out with Moses and Elijah. I always think of that last scene in this first Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know... <laughs> There's like Yoda and Anakin. Yoda and Anakin. They're all, they're all there shining and it's all good. Um, well, I guess none of that's an accident because George Lucas was basing all of his Star Wars thing on classic mythology. So I'm sure that wasn't an accident either. Um, so Jesus, in the Jesus stories, is firmly aligned with Moses and Elijah. Another feature that makes Elijah distinct from all the other prophets uh, is that he doesn't die physically, right? He is, when it's time for him to die, he is taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And his disciple, Elisha, watches it. And then, so... And he receives And receives a double portion of the Holy Spirit from Elijah. Then Elijah, who has left, and this is where I want to get into John and Jesus. Elijah wears a hairy mantle, right, with a belt, just like John. John may be fashioning himself after Elijah. Or, or the writers may be fashioning the writers, fiction after Elijah. Or the writers way, may right. have fashioned John's fiction. But there's an identification of John with Elijah, with Elijah. Um, because and in the Jewish tradition, as you may know, because Elijah is physically taken up to heaven, then over, there are thousands of years and variations of stories about Elijah still roaming the earth on behalf of God, basically as the herald of seeing whether we're ready for the um, for for. Uh, the, the new age, right. seeing if we're ready. For and that he will return when we are ready. And the last prophet, Malachi, writing maybe about the year 300 BC, says, Behold, I am bringing my prophet Elijah, and on that day, you know, to, uh, Elijah will come, and on that day there will be a great and awesome and terrible day, and the hearts of the son, children will turn to the hearts of the parents, and the hearts of the parents will turn to the children, and then... So Elijah is the harbinger of good news in the Jewish tradition. Now, the other motif that gets repeated here is that Elijah has a disciple. Elijah has a disciple named Elisha. And they're both wonder workers. They raise the dead. They have 20 loaves and they feed 100 people. You have to read all the Elijah and Elisha stories and you will see that Every single one of them is recapitulated in the stories about Jesus' miracles. Right. So you need to know that in terms of the literary sort of template mm-hmm. and literary and, and uh, um, cultural out of which the Jesus stories get shaped and elaborated literarily. And the other thing I want to add about that is that uh, so Elijah wears this mantle. Uh, and when he approaches Elisha um, to become his disciple, there's this passage. And it's going to be reminiscent also. Hold on. Uh, uh, oh, 1 Kings 19. Hold on a second. There it is. Oh, for goodness sakes, give me a second. Where's my sticky? Ah. 
So Elijah set out from there. This is right after he anoints Jehu as the next king of Israel. Elijah does that. Um, and God tells him, now go to Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. Uh, and he set out from there and came upon Elisha as Elisha was plowing his field. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him. There's that number 12, which turns up all the time. And he was with the 12th. Elijah came over to him and threw his mantle over him. He took off his hairy cloak and he threw it over the shoulders of Elisha. And uh, he left the, Elijah, Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah saying, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and I will follow you. And Elijah answered him, go ahead. So Elisha then went back from, and took all the oxen and slaughtered them. He cooked their meat with the wooden yokes as fuel and he gave it to the people. In other words, he, everything he got, he just cooked it up, gave it away, and then he arose and followed Elijah and became his attendant. And uh, so um, uh, that's a motif that is being recalled here. Is, is John Elijah and is Jesus Elisha? Um, he receives the double portion, you know? That's he receives the double portion. When Elijah, let me just read you about uh, when Elijah um, goes up to heaven, uh, I'll just share you that portion with you. Chapter 2. Um, Second uh, Kings. All right, here it is. Second Kings, chapter two. I'll just briefly tell you this. He, uh, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, they set out from Gilgal, and they go down to Jericho, and then they go down to the Jordan River. Okay, where is John doing his thing? Jordan. In the Jordan, down by Jericho. <coughs> so this is the site. And Elisha accompanies him and watches Elijah being taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And then it says, um, Elisha saw it, cried out, My father, my father, Israel's chariots and horsemen, Avi, Avi, which Jesus says on the cross, Lama Sabachthani, uh, my dad. Avi is daddy. You know, it's like Abba. It's like. Uh, um, and uh, when he could no longer see Elijah, he tore his garment in two, and he picked up Elijah's mantle, which had dropped from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan, and he took the mantle, which had dropped from Elijah, he struck the water and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Huh. And as he struck the water, it parted to the right and the left. Wow. So the Jordan is parting. All, this is folk tradition, and I don't mean that in a negative way, right? The motifs that you know are about mm -hmm. God's power, you repeat them. There, and uh, uh, when the disciples of the prophets at Jericho saw him from a distance, they said, they exclaimed, the spirit of Elijah has settled on Elisha. And they went to him and bowed low before him mm -hmm. to the ground. And then there's a whole story about all the miracles that Elisha performed. So uh, in a short version, I wanted to throw that into our mix of what we're reading when we read the gospel. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, but so holding that, and I know it's time, but I want to give you a verse now that, that looks at how 
John was now being pictured. So Jesus is speaking, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, about John the Baptist. He says, John is he of whom it is written. And this is a quote from the prophet Malachi, Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, John is that one of whom the prophet spoke. And then he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Oh. It says that. Jesus says that. If you are willing to accept oh. it, he is Elijah. Now, now who is Elijah? <laughs> the, la- the, the end of the prophets, the last verse of the books of the prophets, called Malachi. Malachi is not a person. Malachi means my messenger. We know the names of the other prophets, but Malachi seems to be a pseudonym. Here is how the whole books of the prophets end. Be mindful of the teaching of my servant Moses, whom I charged at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, with laws and rules for all Israel. Behold, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome day of the Lord. He shall reconcile parents with children and children with their parents so that when I come, I do not strike the whole land with utter destruction. So, uh, Moses, Elijah, Elijah, and this is it. He, this, this is it. In, in, again, in the Jewish imagination, that would be the most momentous announce, uh, way of framing what's happening in this moment right out of the prophets. Karen? It's also important for the Jews in the room to know that in the New Testament, uh, or the way that the books of the Bible are... Um, ordered. Oh, ordered. right. We were going to talk about this the very yes. first week, and we didn't get to it. Let Matthew say it, just so we can all hear. Yeah, the, the ordering of, of the Hebrew scriptures is changed in the Old Testament. So what Christians call the Old Testament and what Jews call the, the Hebrew Bible, they really are two different literary documents because they, they order the books in a different way with a certain kind of theological agenda. And so the ordering of the Tanakh... Um, That's this. Yes. So the, the ordering Hebrew there... Bible. What is the ordering? You begin with uh, the you Torah. You begin with the five books of Moses. Then you have all the books of the prophets. And then you have the section called the writings, which are um, uh, a, a, a whole collection of books ending with something called Chronicles, which is a recapitulation of the entire history from Adam to the completion of... So when Christians ordered the scriptures, they shifted it, and they moved the prophets to the end, so that they became a pointer and a link to the New Testament. So it's, they're trying to create a continuous narrative. Like, So we end not with a recapitulation of the history of, of, of Israel. We end with the prophets saying, get ready. <laughs> and, and There's then a we, train coming. Right, and then we... That line. That line that we just heard, I send my messenger ahead of me, is, is pointing, and then the Christian story picks up and says, and hey, it's John the Baptist. In other words, they are right next to each other in the Christian version of the Bible. Which to Jews is very important, because you're always looking at what came just before to help inform... Right, whatever is contiguous in the Jewish literary tradition, scriptural tradition, whatever comes before is crucially connected 
to whatever comes in the beginning of the next mm -hmm. story. And that's how the Jewish Christians and the later Christians then organized their scriptures. Right. Uh, um. So that's a very Christ Jewish thing that the Christians did. Yes, who were Jews. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. They were ordering it. And at that point, you know, canon was still fluid, etc. And so the way that it was structured, um, yes, there was something of a theological or, or a storytelling agenda in the way it was ordered. Yeah. So let's close there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.